In this month's Dhamma podcast, we present Chapter 6, On the Path, from the upcoming audiobook, Realizing Change, by Ian Hetherington. Chapter 6, On the Path Vipassana is intended to be implied in life. So far, we've been concentrating on the meditation technique and how it's learned on courses. Now we're ready to shift the focus to real-world situations, how it works across the spectrum, with children and families, with prisoners in jail, with addicts, with business people, professionals and others. As ever, the individual is the starting point. So we begin this new section with meditators telling their own stories of transformation, from first sitting through years of practice and service to the responsibilities of teaching. Sometimes a single Vipassana course can give someone enough direct experience of the truth inside that for them the path is clear. This is where I want to go. This is what I want to be. For others it takes longer. Either way, when we meditate daily, treat ourselves and others right, then, bud to blossom, the inner change starts showing. Here are some snapshots from that memorable journey. Dhamma Sitting in the shadow of yellow-white light, illuminated in the glow of calm happiness, I glimpse the way. Kathy Henry is a family nurse practitioner. Together with her husband, Ben Turner, she has coordinated Vipassana courses in a Seattle jail since 1997. First course. Life prior to Vipassana was difficult for me. I was angry, anxious, self-pitying, unforgiving. I had spent many years living with an alcoholic on whom I blamed all my problems. And although to all outward appearances I've seemed to be coping, my mind was filled with despair. I wanted what I couldn't have and was angry at the way my life had turned out. I was suffering. I came to Vipassana through my son. At 59 years of age, I didn't think there was much my children could teach me. Little did I know that my son was to give me such a great gift. I thought that I had given him the gift of life, and now here he was, giving it to me. He had travelled to India and done some volunteer work for the summer, and afterwards did a ten-day Vipassana course before returning home. He spoke frequently and fervently of his time meditating at Dehradun, and gave me William Hart's book, The Art of Living, to read. I decided that I needed a copy for myself and wrote to order one. With the book came a list of reading material, and as I became more intrigued, I wrote to Dhammadipa, the UK centre, for more information, and eventually took the giant step of registering for a 10-day course. I think my son became a little concerned at this point, and reminded me over and over again of the four o'clock morning wake-up time, the ten hours of meditation a day, and most of all the necessity to keep silent for nine days. I must admit this last point caused me a little concern, as I am someone who loves to chatter. 
I was very hesitant when the big day arrived. I had visions of being encamped with a group of hippies, new age travellers and young people. The smiling girl who greeted me on arrival soon dispelled all my silly preconceived notions, and in looking around the registration hall, I saw people of all ages and descriptions. I felt comfortable from the first day. My cellmate, as I like to refer to the woman who shared my room, was as intent as I on getting the most out of those ten days, so there was no problem with rule-breaking chatter. In fact, this was one of the most enjoyable aspects. No need to converse unnecessarily. It wasn't easy. I never thought I'd be able to sit comfortably, no matter which position I adopted or however many cushions I used. I experienced a lot of pain in my legs, and standing up after one hour was pure agony. The period when we had to sit for two hours almost finished me off. But then, after several difficult days of trying to meditate, something happened. I woke one morning eager to get to the meditation hall. I was the first to arrive. I sat absorbing all the energy, all the metta, all the peace. It was the start of some of the happiest days of my life. Some mornings, during rest periods, I watched the sunrise over the hills and in the evenings marvelled at the sunsets. Every moment became special. And even as these moments passed, as I learned to live in the present, accepting that everything changes, my peace grew. I've never experienced such joy as on the tenth day of the course. It was the beginning And although stepping back into the modern world has subdued my joy somewhat, I still experience peace whenever I sit to meditate. When my children were young and asked me what I wanted for my birthday present, I always said, just a little peace and quiet. In those ten days at Dhammadipa, that is what I received. I am only a beginner. I have much to learn. In my day-to-day life, It's not always easy to practice living in the present, to detach, to meditate. I'm just now preparing to register for another 10-day course. I hope to go once a year. I'm looking for a group to meditate with in my area on a weekly basis. Each day as I sit to meditate, I feel as if my life is changing. I am changing. I am learning and Vipassana is my teacher. I read a quotation once which begins... Place yourself in the middle of the stream of power and wisdom which flows into your life. Vipassana meditation is my stream. What have I gained from practicing Vipassana? The truth about myself and the beginning of liberation from suffering. And I don't chatter nearly as much. Jean Bain is retired and lives in southwest England. A clue and a gift. During a time of profound metaphysical crisis, I was attempting to keep the external parts of my life in some kind of functioning mode. A part of this was my membership on a committee, which I was highly committed to in principle, though the contact it necessitated with one of the chief movers and shakers was always challenging for me. We were two people with a diametrically opposed way of looking at, speaking about, and living our lives. I'd also undertaken some training as a potential volunteer phone counsellor, 
in order to put some meaning into my seemingly aimless life. If I had had a strong religious conviction, a long retreat, like six months worth, might have seemed like the possible way to get myself back on the road again. However, the strong church upbringing of my youth had been forced upon me and had no real meaning for me for 20 years. Undertaking such a retreat would have been plainly hypocritical and therefore useless. Being a great believer in the role of the local library in the overall scheme of human existence, I went there one day to search for a clue. I found a couple of books in the religion and philosophy section which told of two different people's experiences in Thailand and Burma involving a meditation technique which sounded both harrowing and uplifting. Deep inside, I knew I was onto something productive, and this discovery alone gave my life a little more impetus. The next day, I had to pay a visit to the committee rooms to complete some important paperwork. The person in question was there, waxing lyrical, as often, about some trauma that had left a deep imprint in the form of an acute stomachache. Against my intuitive need to be away from this overwhelming negativity, I found a part of myself that was able to squeeze out a drop of compassion. Using my newly developing counselling skills, I asked, what would you like to do with this pain in your stomach? Walking towards the window and going through the appropriate actions, my colleague replied, I'd like to screw it up in a ball and throw it out of this window. Oh, it's gone. It's gone. Thank you. Thank you. As a way of repaying me for this act, which I didn't feel very much responsibility for, I was shown a recently arrived new pair of shoes, exquisite soft leather pumps made with extraordinary skill and decorated in painstaking and understated style. I was quite taken aback at their beauty. On asking where they came from, I was told, someone my brother meditates with made them. As though treading barefoot around a floor strewn with broken glass, I made inquiries about what kind of meditation. Though my colleague was clearly not in the least bit interested in her brother's bizarre hobby, a brief explanation sufficed to let me know that this was the same technique I had been reading about. The brother's phone number was carefully elicited. A phone call that day confirmed that yes, this was the same Vipassana technique I had read about. I was given the phone number of Dhammabhumi in the Blue Mountains just outside Sydney. On ringing them, I discovered that a 10-day course was due to start very soon and that I was able to attend. That first course healed the deep wounds I had been carrying for so long. And a long way off, at the end of the tunnel, was the possibility of a more fulfilling way of life beyond mere religion. I've often pondered on this chain of events and thought how appropriate that the gift should have been given to me because I was able to momentarily overcome my deep aversion to the behaviour of someone and give to them. Olivia Salmon has made her home in New South Wales, Australia. Though not always keeping up her meditation since the retreat in 1988, she tries to live by its principles, maintaining an awareness that this too will change, she's convinced helped her recover from a life-threatening horse-riding accident in 1990. Journey to the East, 1972 
John Beery comes from the United States, but has lived and worked in Japan for 17 years as a college instructor. He and his wife were among the first generation of Westerners to learn the technique directly from S.N. Goenka in India. I find it very curious that now, in my 50th year, I've been practicing Vipassana meditation for more than half my life. 25 years ago, my wife Gail and I began a journey to the East that would turn out to be a transforming one in every sense of the word. Someone once said that your education only begins when you start to travel. Ours commenced a few weeks after our marriage in 1972 with a flight to Europe. With an eye eastward, we slowly meandered southward to Spain, took a boat out of Barcelona to Egypt, visited Lebanon, Syria and Iraq, and wound up a couple of months later in Kuwait, hoping to find passage on a ship to Bombay. We had read somewhere of a ship that left from Kuwait for Bombay, calling at ports in the Persian Gulf. This sounded like just the ticket, as it was now January, and the overland route to India via Iran and Afghanistan would be too cold for us without winter clothing. The SS Dwarka was a P&O line ship built in 1948 as an unberthed passenger ship. This meant that although it offered a few cabins, it was designed to serve deck-class passengers. Steerage, in other words. It sailed the Persian Gulf between Basra and Bombay and mostly served the Hajis making the pilgrimage to Mecca. In the movie Gandhi, in the scene where the Mahatma arrives back in India from South Africa, that newly painted white ship was none other than the seaworthy SS Dwarka, which safely delivered not only Ben Kingsley, but also Gail and myself, to India's shores. Since the cheapest cabin class on the SS Dwarka was a whopping ten times the price of deck class, Gail and I paid our $40 and were counted among the unberthed passengers. We would not be dining at the captain's table on this voyage. Along with two intrepid Italians, we found ourselves crammed below decks with about 900 Arabs and Pakistanis bound for ports in the Gulf and or Pakistan. Cold seawater showers and the hottest curries imaginable to this day were nicely offset by a kind crew of British and Chinese seamen. They took pity on Gail, who couldn't eat a bite of the fiery fare by supplying her cheese and bread from their own canteen. The journey that was supposed to take nine days wound up taking eleven as we made lazy stops in the Persian Gulf at Bahrain, Doha, Dubai, Muscat, and then onto the Pakistani ports of Gwada and Karachi before steaming into Bombay, now Mumbai, on the 6th of February 1973. Why India? my mother repeatedly asks me. It's an often repeated question. In a sense, India is the ancient teacher of humanity. It is the spiritual home of two of the world's great faiths, Hinduism and Buddhism, which have each had such transforming effects on generations of visitors, conquerors, colonists, traders, travellers and tourists alike. A land imbued with spiritual heights of fantastic vision, dovetailed next to deep ignorance and superstition. A magical land where possibilities exist of entry to worlds unimagined. Certainly India is one of the most otherworldly places on this earth. A timeless place, India is a must-see destination for all seekers. Visit India, 
the Air India poster in Baghdad said, you'll never be the same again. Truer words were never spoken. Was there ever a time before or since like India in the early 1970s? India at that time was going through another of its many invasions as droves of young Westerners now flocked to it. A resurgent interest in things Eastern, philosophy, spirituality, music, not to mention cheap living and an unbelievable degree of unbridled freedom made the subcontinent an attractive destination for a wider variety of young Westerners. In those days, British young people would set off hitchhiking to India with £50 sterling in their pocket and spend months sampling life on the subcontinent. For North Americans in a hurry, Air India at that time was offering round-trip flights to Delhi from New York for $450. Many people went straight from college campuses and or rock festivals to sample the giddy heights of the mystic East. However, without time to culturally decompress, many found the streets of village India to be somewhat more than they had bargained for. The Air India ticket required a minimum stay of 30 days before the return flight could be used, and there were many tearful negotiations at the Air India office in New Delhi for those wanting out early. Those travellers who had acclimated to West India via the overland route from Europe through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan were weary but seasoned travellers by the time they reached India. They fared better and found in India a welcome change from the countries they had passed through. India has an atmosphere of tolerance and freedom seldom encountered elsewhere. On the overland route to India, as well as within India itself, Young Western travellers would frequently meet at crossroads, share a bus ride or an evening's lodging, and then without design meet thousands of miles and weeks later as their paths crossed once again. Exchanging information on places visited, places to avoid and things to do, this eclectic network of young backpacking nomads included many who were attracted to the early Vipassana meditation courses taught by S.N. Goenka. News of Goenkaji and the Vipassana courses spread almost entirely by word of mouth, with the result that literally thousands of young people attended those early courses across the length and breadth of India in the early 1970s. Some would follow Gwankaji from course to course, taking a number of consecutive courses before heading home or to different shores. Some remained in India for years and got involved with serving on the courses. It was these individuals, the handful of early Dhamma servers, who would play such an important role in the beginning days of Dhammagiri, the first meditation centre, Atigatpuri. Contact As the SS Dwarka steamed into Bombay Harbour on the east side of the peninsula, the gateway of India seemed to be welcoming us just as it did England's King George V on his state visit to India in 1912. Setting foot for the first time on Indian soil was exhilarating. After 11 days at sea, here we were, in India. Down the gangplank, through Indian customs and into a horse-drawn carriage, even King George couldn't have felt grander. We were giddy, flushed with excitement at finding ourselves on the threshold of the vast subcontinent, the land of the Buddha, yogis, Gandhi, Kipling. The first night in Bombay, we met a British traveller at our guest house in Kalaba, who upon hearing that we had just set foot in India said, 
Don't miss taking a Goenka meditation course while you're here. When I asked what kind of meditation Goenka was, he said, Oh, it's a meditation on the metabolic processes of the body. So much for factual descriptions from old students. With that nebulous response, I discounted the idea, thinking that here in the mystic East, there would be countless techniques of meditation to sample. Little did I know at that time that I would sample only one of them and remain content with it all these years. We soon left Bombay's urban commotion for the quiet beaches of Goa, looking forward to rest and relaxation after three months of hard travelling. Another ship and another day at sea, and we arrived in Panjim, Goa. We headed to Kolva Beach, a few kilometres outside the town of Margao, less crowded than the infamous hip Arjuna Beach. Kolva was quiet by comparison. There were a number of rooms for let in the seaside village, but we opted for a grass shack on the beach. A 12-year-old boy who was to become our first landlord had recently constructed it. He was a hard bargainer, and we finally settled the rent of 100 Indian rupees per month, about $8. We weren't long in Kolva before we met a Vipassana old student who was able to shed a little more light on this Goenka meditation. I remember the young woman well and credit her for turning us on to Vipassana. To this day, though we've lost contact with Sandy Snyder, we always remember her. She had taken, I think, two courses with Goenkaji, and while she didn't describe much that I can remember about the course, there was something about her recollections that touched me. She recounted her own misgivings about getting involved with cults and mysticism. Without a trace of preaching, she recounted the no-nonsense discipline the course required, what a struggle it was to try to control her mind, and the solid benefits she felt she earned as a result. It was just what I wanted to hear, that development of mind was possible, and that the only cost was honest effort, not blind belief. When I heard that the next course was about to begin in a few days in Bombay, I was ready to return there immediately for it. Gail persuaded me to register instead for the following course in Madras in early April, which we did by writing the next day to the registration contact, asking for a place on the upcoming course at Ram Kalyan Mandapam. In the meantime, we had time to rest and enjoy a couple of weeks in Goa. Afterward, we made a quick journey across South India to Ramaswaram, where we boarded a ferry to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. After a hurried two weeks on the island, we arrived back in India in Madras, a mere ten days early for the meditation course we were determined not to miss. Meeting a Remarkable Man One of the first things we did in Madras was to track down the registration contact for the course, a local businessman, Mr K.C. Toshnawal. He was quite surprised to find two bedraggled, road-weary Westerners at his office door. More would follow, though, as the course attracted about a hundred of our tribe. We also learned that shortly before the course, Goenkaji would give a public talk on Vipassana, and we made plans to attend. The talk in Madras was in a section of the city that tourists and travellers were not likely to frequent. With difficulty, we somehow managed to find the hall, and waited with a few other young travellers and about 50 Indians for Goenkaji to arrive. He came in shortly, and after a few silent minutes began speaking in Hindi. He went on in Hindi for some time, 
and I began wondering if he was going to speak to us few foreigners in English at all. Finally, after about an hour, he began in English and explained to us what we were about to undertake in our first Vipassana course. Though the years have blurred the details of that first tour, I remember it mainly for its clear, down-to-earth presentation and its absence of mysticism. U. S. N. Goenka, as he was known then, came across as the genuine article. His sense of humour and self-deprecating lack of airs found a receptive audience in us. We left the hall feeling positive. So far, so good. We were on the right track and looking forward to the course beginning in a few days. First course, Madras, 1973. The course site was Ram Kalyan Mandapam, a small marriage hall in a suburb of Madras. It was quiet enough from the front, but the rear of the two-storey building abutted a market street where the daily bazaar sounds provided the backdrop to the course. We arrived early in the day the course was to begin, and as others began to arrive, we found familiar faces from the road among them. In all, about 140 students took the course, with the majority being young Western travellers. We were shown floor space to lie down. No mattresses, no sitting cushions, no mosquito nets. Unlike today's comfortable courses, in those days it was bare bones. If you didn't carry it with you, you went without. Toilet and bathing facilities were designed for much smaller gatherings, which meant a near-continuous queue during the break times. And it was April. Temperatures soared into the high 30s Celsius, upper 90s Fahrenheit. The 10-day course format was the same then as it is today. Anapana, maintaining awareness of respiration for the first three and a half days, and then the practice of Vipassana for the remainder. The daily timetable was the same, with the addition of hot milk and fruit at nine in the evening. Goenkaji was a very energetic teacher in those days. He gave two discourses, Hindi and English, each day, led every group sitting, conducted checking, gave noontime interviews, and held a lengthy question-and-answer session each evening, which lasted well past ten. Only years later, as a new assistant teacher, did I appreciate what an astonishing effort he put into those early courses. And yet, he worked so joyfully. Here was a man who practised what he preached, and displayed the benefits of his practice in his every action. His instructions and explanations were so simple, so scientific and down-to-earth, there was no mysticism. No great leaps of faith. Personal experience was the only criterion. Goenkaji's message of what the Buddha taught was clear and pragmatic, free from dogma and dependence on any guru. Each of us has only himself and the results of his actions to rely on. There is no outside agency he can petition for happiness or liberation. It struck a deep resonance within me, for in the end it was simply common sense. Goenkaji's enthusiasm for this the heart of the practice of Dhamma was so full of joy that it was simply infectious. It often served to carry a wavering student over the difficulties of the course. However, there was no getting around the fact that the course required hard work, and I had mine cut out for me. I had heard that we'd be required to sit on the floor more or less cross-legged, and that there would be sessions in which we were asked not to move for a full hour. Now, despite an athletic background, Flexibility of the lower extremities was never my strong point, and the mere prospect of sitting cross-legged for ten days was daunting. 
sitting in that posture for a full hour was out of the question. A few days before the course, in our hotel, I tried to see how long I could manage this sitting position and made it to 15 minutes before collapsing in pain. Yet somehow on the course, I was able to contend with the physical discomfort and incredibly found, after Vipassana practice began on day four, that with a strong determination, I could complete each of the hour-long sittings without moving. The levels of pain encountered and transcended were extraordinary. The dredging up of repressed memory and emotional pain accompanied them hand in hand. In turn, they ebbed and flowed as I tried to practice Vipassana and just observe what was taking place within me without the usual habit of reacting to it. With each experience of this ebb and flow of agreeable and disagreeable experiences, it began to dawn on me that I was largely responsible for my suffering, both physically and mentally. When pain arose, I made it worse by fighting against it in the hopes of making it go away. When I learned to just accept it for what it was, a passing phenomenon, its entire temper altered. Not that I became insensitive to the pain, but it no longer held the same sway over me. At times, very brief moments, I was actually able to interrupt the anguish that normally accompanied it. These moments grew and I felt a real sense of gaining control over myself. In the short span of ten days, I had gotten a glimpse of what was possible and began to consider, is there anything that a determined person can't attain? Goenkaji said early on that the course was like an equation. You would get out of it exactly what you put in. I took that advice to heart and made very strong efforts. By the end of ten days, I'd been through the most wrenching, cathartic experience of my life, both physically and emotionally. It felt like a great purge had taken place within me, and in its wake had left me strangely quiet and satisfied. I felt I had encountered a practice somehow vaguely familiar. The benefits of that very first course, and two more over the next couple of months, were so profound that it took some time to be able to register and view them with perspective. One aspect, however, was immediately startling. The moral precepts we were asked to follow for the duration of the course had initially struck me as quaint and curious. Now, at the end of the course, I had realised directly their importance, and from that very first course, it had been easy to keep them unbroken in any major way. For me, in those days, this was no small thing. One of the precepts, though, required some elaboration. One day, late in that first course in Madras, I went to Goenkaji at noon to let him know how I was doing and to give him my take on his teaching, the Dhamma. Though satisfied in general with his presentation, I thought that in my case I'd require an exemption or at least a more flexible attitude towards Sila, the moral precepts, especially the fifth one, but he would hear none of it saying that even slight use of any kind of intoxicant was totally incompatible with the practice of Vipassana. When I went on and described my practice and said that I thought I might need a little more work on this technique, he readily concurred, saying it sometimes took a couple of courses to get the hang of it. With that unambiguous direct invitation ringing in my ears, I made up my mind to attend the next course two weeks later in Baroda, a city northeast of Bombay. It took a little while to persuade Gail what a good idea it was to take another course so quickly. And Baroda in May was no joke. Water shortages, 
temperatures in the 40s Celsius, 110s Fahrenheit, and the two of us the only foreigners on a Hindi-only course. But in the end, all was worth it. With this second course completed, we felt over the hump and happily headed off to Nepal to cool out for the remainder of India's hot season. After trekking in the Himalayas of Nepal, we returned to India for a third course in Dalhousie in August before beginning the long journey home. Search complete. I remember being asked a number of times during this peripatetic period just what it was that I was searching for. The question always seemed to annoy me, as if searching for something was somehow beneath me, as if it demeaned me in some way. What? Me need something? I'd react and protest that I wasn't searching for anything, but deep down I knew that while not on a formal search per se, I was certainly on the lookout for something, anything which was good and which would last. In its unrefined mode, that often meant being attracted to greater and greater doses of enjoyment or pleasure. But these temporary diversions never satisfied for long. At a deeper level, there was an emptiness needing to be filled, a thirst that I knew sensuality would never be able to fully quench. When I completed my first course, and then two more, I felt satisfied beyond my wildest expectation. From that time onwards, I felt an inner certainty that here in the practice of Dhamma was the good path. Here in the practice of Vipassana was the development work that needed to be done in this lifetime. That thrill of the enthusiastic new student in 1973 has never long been absent from my mind these 25 years. Instead, it has deepened with each succeeding step on the path of Dhamma and has sustained me without interruption. I consider myself the most fortunate person in the world for having found my way at such a comparatively young age. I feel so grateful for the efforts my teacher took on my behalf. Without him, I don't know where I'd be today. Next. In 1982, Gail and I were among those Goenkaji asked to represent him and conduct courses on his behalf as his assistant teachers. Initially, I was reluctant until I began realising that all I was doing was introducing newcomers to my teacher and his presentation of Vipassana. In effect, I'm saying to them now what I said to many others way back then in India. Hey, you've just got to meet this man and listen to what he has to say. Once, when I explained this to Goenkaji, he said that, yes, that's what he's doing too, continuing to assist his teacher, Sayaji Ubakin, in introducing students to the practice of Dhamma, just as he taught it. May all of you who read this take me up on this invitation and come and see for yourselves the benefits of this good path. May all of you be happy. John Beery, USA Embracing Life Vipassana is a path taught by the Buddha that leads to Nibbana. First the word path, which is poetic and evocative, but what does it mean? I think the best colloquial translation of the word path is a way of life. Vipassana is intended to be and was originally taught as a way of life. It doesn't have to be used in that way. 
Certainly, there are people who come to a 10-day Vipassana course, get some value out of it, and never continue to practice or never return. We have obviously nothing against that, and that may be valuable for some people. But the attention behind the teaching and the essence of the teaching is to help people establish a way of life. It's a path that leads potentially from its origin when you first start practicing Vipassana through the rest of your life. Two other words that might help describe a path or a way of life. One is that it's enduring. It's something that remains of value. I found in life there are two kinds of activities. There are those that the more you do them, the less valuable they become. Many of the pleasures of childhood seem to become less relevant to adults. And then there are other activities which, the more you do them, the more valuable they become. Enduring activities, classic ones, would be reading or friendships that have become increasingly valuable with time. So Vipassana is enduring. And it's embracing. Embracing means that it's not focused simply in a narrow way, but it's focused outward. It sweeps into life and embraces many or even all aspects of life. Paul Fleischmann, psychiatrist and writer. An excerpt from a talk given to the 1999 Vipassana Conference held at Damadara, Massachusetts, USA. Psychology from the inside. For as long as I can remember, I believed that every person had the right and the ability to achieve peace and happiness. When it did not happen for me automatically, as all my childhood and adult fairy tales had promised, I was lost. No one had given me any practical way of overcoming the pain and suffering that I was experiencing. This led me, as a mature adult, to turn to the study of psychology to find the answers, to help myself and to help others to happiness. After years of study, the pain and disillusionment were multiplied rather than diminished. I remember looking around at my fellow students and realising that these were the people who were now equipped to go out into the world as experts on the mind and human behaviour, and supposedly to have the answers to help others. From numerous workshops, from exam results and from personal contacts, I knew that they did not know much more than myself. In fact, some very young ones probably knew less through a lack of life experience. Then I considered our lecturers, those that had guided and worked with us through the years, who obviously knew their theories and had had a lot of experience. Some of them I had gotten to know personally, and I knew that their marriages were in trouble. Some had children with serious behavioural problems that they could not handle positively. Some were just plain miserable, and others downright ignorant in their attitudes and behaviour. For some time I was immobilised with disappointment and despair. Finally my determination and faith in my belief of the existence of a way out of suffering surfaced again. There had to be a way. Back to the books and a period of intense self-education and examination. This time 
I studied the alternative approaches to mind and body healing. It seemed that I was getting closer, but there was still missing links. One thing that I knew for sure at this stage was that the old adage, know thyself, was an essential prerequisite of any personal growth and of any possibility of helping others. Would meditation help? Up until then, I had resolutely avoided involvement with any groups, with gurus, any groups that aimed at developing personal power over matter or mind, already understanding that one must retain full responsibility for one's own mind and that power corrupts if the ego is strong. Could I find a suitable practice in the swamp of alternatives? A few tentative inquiries led me to Vipassana meditation as taught by Mr. S. N. Goenka of India. When I first heard about this meditation, I knew that it was important for me. In fact, I felt it was familiar. But I also remember very carefully and very suspiciously studying the literature that was promptly forwarded to me. However, it was with alacrity, still tempered by cautiousness, that I enrolled in my first course held in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney. Knowing the often exorbitant cost of workshops, psychology fees, and the greed that was often involved in mitigating people's suffering, I was very impressed by the fact that these courses were being run on a donation basis and with voluntary workers. But what about the quality? Ah, the relief to find that it was not a hippie outfit, that it was well organised, that there were people from all walks of life and all ages there, that the management appeared intelligent and caring, that the facilities were clean and comfortable. Right until the end, I was waiting for the financial hit, the hidden charges. It did not come. Everything was given unconditionally. We were only asked to follow rules and to surrender to the teacher's guidance. Much of that course was spent marvelling at the generosity that was being given so selflessly. After all the preliminaries and formalities were completed, I resolved to put my intellect aside and to focus on the practice as it proceeded. All the best theories and scientific premises are of no use to us unless there is a positive gain to be had, especially on a long-term basis. I worked as instructed, and worked and worked until I was a blur of exhaustion. The ten longest and most difficult days of my life unfolded slowly. And that is saying something, given some of the problems I had experienced to date. At the end of the course, I had no idea what I thought or felt about the efficacy of the ten days that I had spent there. My whole being seemed to be in a state of shock from the intensity of the practice. For once, my mind had surrendered to a position of observation rather than theoretical analysis. It was only later, in retrospect, that I understood that a profound change had taken place in my mind, my psyche. No other psychology technique or practice that I had come across had ever come close to bringing this sort of change. This was experiential change, deep change with an increased wisdom of my own to go with it. My wisdom, from my own experience, my own practice. It came as a surprise to find not only myself at the next course, but also my husband. He'd seen the changes in me, 
and had realised that at long last I had perhaps found a gem. My memory of the difficulties of the previous ten days had faded with the excitement of the discovery of the effectiveness of Vipassana meditation. This time I resolved that I would work even harder and also try to understand the theory behind the practice. It was like a jigsaw puzzle. All the bits and pieces of understanding that I had slowly began to connect together. Within the year, my 18-year-old son also started working with Vipassana. He saw the positive changes in both of us, and this inspired him to also take the plunge into self-observation and wisdom. Not long after, my 17-year-old daughter, who had already experienced some of the difficulties and sufferings inherent with growing up in a troubled society, undertook her first course. We were now a Dhamma family, all committed to work seriously on ourselves and to also help others achieve the same wonderful benefits. Marie Wilson sat her first retreat in 1984. Together with husband Carsten, she gets great satisfaction from working as a Vivasana volunteer and enjoys exploring the Australian bush. Colours My name is Vanessa, and I've been practising Vipassana for three years. I was born in an African-American family 42 years ago at Roanoke, Virginia, USA. Growing up in a segregated society influenced my views and perceptions on every level. I learned hatred, mistrust and resentment towards the white community. I didn't know any member of my community that privately didn't harbour these emotions, regardless of their social status. This position of professional victimisation was a daily burden. I needed to find a way out. I was also searching for techniques, religions, philosophies that could offer me peace of mind. How could I love anyone, myself included, if I knew that I hated and feared this group? I've lived in New York City for the past 17 years. There I was fortunate to hear about Vipassana from a friend, and I knew I had to try it. My first course, I remember Mr. Goenka talking about body sensations and how we react to them. I realised that this is what I had been doing, and this activity would continue to hold me a prisoner to actual and perceived racism. Mr. Goenka stated, that life was misery, but there was a way out. I didn't understand the technique in those first courses, but I trusted that Vipassana would disperse the deep-rooted complexes I carried. In the USA, the only courses I've attended were at the centre in Massachusetts. I'm deeply moved by the dedication and hard-working energy of this Vipassana community. As I continued to take courses and serve as a volunteer there, I noticed that very few African-Americans participated. Many that did attend did not return, and few, if any, had progressed towards longer retreats. I was frequently the only person of a coloured background at the centre. This position enabled me to observe quite acutely my aversion towards the white community. Emotions and thoughts long since buried surfaced again, 
sitting course after course, practicing Vipassana, I noticed a change taking place in me. I was starting to feel a deep compassion for the white group, whom I had once hated, and realized that they were as much in misery and ignorance as I was. My hatred, fear and jealousy towards them were lifted. For the first time in my life, I could actually observe experiences related to racial issues more objectively and respond in a balanced fashion. I've been telling members of my community about Vipassana. Many are excited and ready to take a course. I'm going to make every effort to find off-centre sites near the city. Vanessa Rawlings from New York wrote this account after completing a 45-day meditation retreat. Both her parents have sat a 10-day Vipassana course. Battling a crisis. My youngest son Alex's death sent me into a major depression, but neither Lisa nor I recognised it at first because my sudden fits of anger blinded us to what was really going on. I was working very hard for the California Housing Trust, trying to keep it from being pushed into bankruptcy by its troubled projects, commuting 150 miles a day. I was manic and under lots of pressure from day one and very fearful I would fail. I directed the anger at Lisa and the housing trust staff. Lisa took it for about a year and then told me we had to see a counsellor or I had to leave. So we went to a therapist who persuaded me to get antidepressants and then began to work with us on what was really my problem. The therapist worked hard to establish trust and rapport with me, but it was clear that this kind of anger was unacceptable. I started the medication, and it helped, but not completely. I continued to blow up on occasion, so the therapist suggested I try meditation. A few months later, after I was fired, the time was available in spades, so I went. I had learned about Vipassana from a colleague at the Housing Trust, but because of the workload I had, I never had the time for the 10-day training session. Coincidentally, I picked a course for the last part of August without thinking much about the fact that Alex's birthday is August 25th. It was very difficult. After the first day, I knew I was going to have trouble staying on. The silence wasn't so bad, but the pain in my body my back and legs especially, from sitting, was almost unbearable. Then, sometime during the fifth day, just as I was sure I would just have to quit, the pain dissipated almost entirely and quite suddenly in the midst of the afternoon group session. The tears started streaming down my face because I knew I had passed through some kind of barrier and that I would make it. And I did. It was not a piece of cake, there was still pain and lots of impatience, but I never had any doubt that I could finish the course. I suspected, and believed today, that I was on the path to some kind of liberation. As the course went on, I grew happier, then in the final two days, positively exhilarated. When it ended, I felt both sky-high and limp with relief. The breakthrough with the pain was on the day before Alex's birthday, and when I told the teacher about this, my guilt 
over being a bad and absent father. She said simply that the exceptional pain could very well have been the pain I felt about his death having never been fully expressed. I think this is true, that the meditation allows me to focus on these feelings and releases the grief. I don't pursue the cause and effect cycle too much because I don't have to. I'm at peace with the fact of his death. I'm not haunted by guilt or remorse or loneliness. I miss him terribly, but the idea of the young man he was lives on in my mind. I'm happier than I have ever been in my life. I hardly ever lose my temper now, and I'm quick to feel real remorse about it when I do, so I can apologise immediately. In one way, I don't recognise myself, but in another I do. I'm the guy I would have been in 1970 if I hadn't started drinking hard liquor daily in 1965. Lisa and I have the kind of marriage we always wanted. The companionship, the joint struggle towards our goals, are sufficient to make the marriage good, even excellent. I owe my life to her for getting me to AA, which was the start down this path. The therapist was critical for insight, for the surface to use as a sounding board, for the intellectual engagement and the tough love encouragement, and the meditation was simply the most profound experience of my life, which completed the liberation from demons. Wally Roberts, 58, is a community organiser and journalist in USA. quiet space. On coming back from ten days serving on a Vipassana course, my Shakuhachi teacher said, What has happened to you? You are playing amazingly, as if you are not your usual self, but someone else. Shakuhachi is a Japanese end-blown bamboo flute. The way to play it is by placing the blowing edge on the upper chin so that the sharp edge will be centred in the airstream produced from one's lips. Structurally speaking, it's a very simple instrument with only five finger holes, but it sends forth myriads of tones and shades. The distance from one's mouth to the tip of the blowing edge of the mouthpiece helps determine the pitch. One can raise the pitch by tilting the head down and bringing one's mouth closer to the edge of the mouthpiece. Controlling the sound is a very difficult matter and involves producing a steady airstream and being able to control it in different ways. Every change in one's breathing is immediately reflected by the sound produced, thus making the shakuhachi a perfect mirror of one's own breath motions, a very sensitive mirror of one's inner emotional undulations. And mine used to be very shaky a soul afraid of its own reflection. By meditating on three Vipassana courses, serving one and sitting every day for two hours, I gained many things. One of them is developing a kind of inner calmness, steadiness, an inner space like a quiet lake that whatever I'm dealing with nowadays, be it people, work, thoughts or playing the shakuhachi, can be taken into this quiet space in me and dealt with peacefully. And I feel that it is but a stage 
and the understanding and wisdom gained is continuously building up and spaces within me are widening constantly. Aris El Grichi was born in Israel in 1961 and is currently enrolled in a literature doctoral course in Japan. Learning to balance. While the experiences that can arise in meditation are not to be compared nor given any evaluation, still the relating of them sometimes helps to inspire confidence in others who are struggling on the same path. But if certain of these experiences are taken as something which one must attain, then they create obstacles. A few instances will illustrate the point. In my 10th or 11th course, I found that I could not feel sensations below the nostrils and above the upper lip, nor anywhere else in the body for seven or eight days. No complaint, no advice sought. Just observe what is. Once it also happened that after seven or eight years of meditation, having taken a number of courses and assisting Goenkaji with the teaching work, there arose in me during one course a tremendous aversion to the discipline, rules and regulations. It began the first day at the first sitting and was so strong that it was not possible for me to do a single moment of anapana. This continued for two full days. I had been telling students to return to anapana when any difficulty arises. Now here I was, in this predicament. Normally, I find solutions to problems which arise by myself. So what to do? Despite being unable to do anapana, there was no worry or tension. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, after a few hours on the third day, the resistance cleared and I began working effortlessly with enthusiasm for the remainder of the course. These experiences have been very helpful for me in learning how to deal with different situations equanimously. May they serve the reader likewise on this path of Dhamma. N.H. Parikh, a retired engineer, lives with his wife in Mumbai. A Rock in the Sea After 24 years practicing Vipassana, I certainly don't feel superior to anyone else. However, I do feel that my practice is gently leading my life in a proper direction. Experiencing the mind and body for the first time as a changing phenomenon was a dramatic event. Practicing equanimity to all that, deep-seated conditioning passed away, and the mind felt steam-cleaned and wonderfully calm. Never again has the contrast between the positive and negative been so obvious, and consequently the results never so sharply felt. Successive courses of ten days or more each year have become valued opportunities to work on myself, a time to establish a stronger contact with the deeper levels of being, and a chance to let go and link up again, with that timeless river of truth flowing within. Due to my own meditation and direct observation of the laws of cause and effect, I have seen the benefits of avoiding unwholesome actions. My life has become based on the rock of morality which strikes me as a great strength 
Surrendering to Dhamma, or truth within, is not a loss. It has enabled me to face important life decisions with the feeling that if I look after Dhamma, Dhamma will look after me. As I've come to understand that only my own reaction to my own sensations can harm me at the ultimate level, I've felt increasingly secure because my happiness has become less dependent on the type of sensation experienced. Consequently, I can let things come and go without such deep attachment. Meditation hasn't quite brought with it the end of history, but it has straightened out many things, making life simpler. Close personal relationships have been completely harmonious and loving. Ups and downs have become less because I have led a life more in accordance with natural laws, and when they have come, they have ended quicker and been less intense. Practicing Vipassana brings with it an acutely enhanced awareness of the fleeting nature of life. Thus, the beauty of all things is appreciated to a fuller extent, and an empathy for things equally ephemeral to myself has grown. At the same time, I've been able to live more of my life in the present moment, free from the cravings of unfulfilled dreams. Vipassana has shown me how to find completeness and purpose in a swirling sea of change. David Bridges is a schoolteacher in UK. Rosebud opens, petal by petal. Understanding awakens. Kathy Henry, USA. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariati, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content, and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyatti.org. That's pariyati.org. For more information about Vipassana meditation, please visit www.dhamma.org. That's dhamma.org.